This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I am a big uh, proponent of marriage. I think it's incredible. I think it's great. I think it's the one of the great fundamental uh resources we have in our lives to grow healthier, happier families, healthier, happier uh, people. It's, it's, it's essential to our lives and to a healthy life. And as our researcher just taught us, uh, Dr. Christy Williams, in the lower economic strata of, of our society, all marriages are not created equal, right? So if, if a 19 to 24-year-old person gets pregnant Historically, we'd say you got to marry. You got to marry the man. Marry the man that you know makes it legit. Now we've got a legitimate thing going on here, and then all of a sudden we suppose that that would then all of a sudden pull them out of the financial hole. And the problem is, it's not the reality they're finding. They're finding that it doesn't necessarily increase or create long-term health for the mother in economic uh, with economic struggles. So. It's, it might be a myth to just automatically push marriage. Now, we should probably be pushing, well, let's not get pregnant, right? That should be pushed. But again, because of whatever reasons and accidents or you know, things happen that all of a sudden you're pregnant – one of the things we probably ought to do is make sure we're evaluating each situation one-on-one. What is the 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 educational and the mental and the intellectual abilities of the people involved that are going to be parenting? What are the uh, financial implications? What What is their earning ability? What educational level have they attained? What resources do they have available to them? It's, these are all important parts of the decision. And there are people that would love to adopt if you want to give the child up. There are parents begging, praying, crying for opportunities to adopt. And so um, marriage may not always be the answer in those situations because, again, who is the father? What are the, what are the opportunities of the father being able to make it? What is the father's support level at getting out so, you know, it used to make more sense. And I think it used to make more sense as a solution because we were in a different culture. We were in a different environment where we could just say, you know, you ought to stay married or you ought to get married if you get pregnant. And that made sense in, in smaller town kind of Christian supported cultures and environments because you had a tight knit group maybe more around you. But in inner city, difficult, financially strained situations – it doesn't necessarily lead to health. Uh, and if it doesn't lead to health for the mother, it probably won't lead to health for the child. It might lead to abuse and, and other situations. So be careful when we think about our answers from 20, 30 years ago being the only answer today. Um, there are more options and more choices that are healthy um, that, again, there are people that would love to raise your child in a, in a marriage um, if if that has to happen as well. So let me give you some other things we want to blow up, a few other myths about marriage that we want to support and blow up. Um, remember, I'm a relationship coach. I'm a marriage 
coach. I, I work with couples every day, thousands a year, teaching them how to strengthen their marriage. I'm not anti-marriage. I am a, I am a realist though. And um, to think that it's the answer, it, sometimes it's not. I mean sometimes the answer for everybody is not to go to college either. Sometimes the answer is to get to work, right? Sometimes the answer is, um, you know, there's it needs to be customized to what you're going through. Another myth here, that your true love will automatically know what to say and do to make you happy. I'm going to go with no. I'm going to go with no on that um, because think about it. I don't even know what I truly want to be happy. So how on earth is my wife supposed to know that? You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We got to be real about what what is a realistic thing that we could be doing and a realistic uh, expectation in my relationship is the, the reality is, is if I want my wife to know something, I need to tell her. If I'm too afraid to tell her, then that's just not going to work. You need to go by based on what we're communicating, what we're sharing with each other. Healthy marriages have the ability to share. Uh, another um, interesting you know, myth is that having kids might bring couples closer together. But <laughs> some of the latest research shows that having children actually increases uh, or decreases marital satisfaction, but it increases family satisfaction. So as a family, you're getting healthier. You like what you're doing. Things are happening. Your family life's getting better because you're having these children. But a lot of times these children are going to take your time away from each other. So the only way to actually make a couple work better after having kids together is to work on it and to put your couple and your marriage relationship first. Thank you. You put it first and then all of a sudden, bada boom, bada bing, whatever you're focusing on is going to grow. If you focus on your relationship, your marriage, your marriage will get better with children. If you focus only on your children, your marriage will probably suffer. Um, uh, let's do one more and then we'll take a break. Um, differences in your marriage will ruin your marriage. Fact is not true. Differences are actually essential to a healthy relationship, just like, you know, uh, potential I- infections and issues in our environment are better for your Im- for your immunization, for your uh, immunology, your ability for your immune system to be strengthened. You need a resistance, right? You need to have something fighting against you. The same is true in our marriages. Whenever somebody tells me we never fight, I don't think, oh, they're healthy. I immediately think, well, how? Is it that you don't talk? Is it that you don't care? Is it that you have everything exactly in common? Um, that usually doesn't happen. There's a point where you somebody has a different opinion. But at some point, differences don't kill your marriage. Actually, differences give you opportunities to get stronger and better in your marriage. Uh, thank you. And another myth that we've got to blow up. We'll take a break, come back, continue this coaching corner, give you a few more myths about marriage that we need to uh, really focus and deal with. Stick with us, folks. Helping you uh, love stronger. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to The Matt Townsend Show. Hey, um... Another little uh, myth for you as we're debunking some of the myths about uh, marriage. Um, we've kind of already talked about the fact that, uh, you know, in your marriage, kids 
can bring happiness, but they also can bring dissension and division. So it depends on what you're focusing on. That's one merit myth we got to blow up. Another myth is that uh, marriage means you're going to have less sex, less <laughs> sex in your relationship. But according to researchers at the Kinsey Institute, um, they basically found that couples that were married um, are having more sex and they're actually having better sex as they would rate it than those couples that are single. We kind of think that our single friends that are uh, you know, engaging in sex are so much happier. But uh, 43% said that of the singles, um, women who were be- ages, between the ages of 25 and 29 reported having uh, uh, fewer uh, sex, uh, ha- having sex fewer times than those of their married friends of the same age. So that's, you know, pretty interesting, pretty interesting little myth debunked. Um, Another uh, interesting thing we talked about a little bit is that happy couples don't argue. The research actually does show that uh, the healthiest couples actually do have a healthy dose of arguments. It's, It's not whether you argue or not that makes the difference. It's how you discuss things that is the real key that we need to pay attention to. Uh, many people have a marriage myth belief that being married is the same as cohabitating. Not true, folks. Not true. There is a big dis- d- uh, division between those that are married and living together and those that are cohabitating and living together. And the researchers said, believe it or not, that those that are cohabitating aren't going to last as long as those that are married simply because they have a commitment. People that would choose to cohabitate might already have an aversion to getting married, and that very sign may be meaning they're less uh, willing to commit. Bing! There you go, folks. Just a few of the myths about marriage and children uh, and communication debunked for you. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. Our goal is to help you love stronger. I think we accomplished it. We'll be right back. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. Welcome back, friends. You know, um, there's this there's this concept I teach when I coach with my clients about, it's called, uh, well, there's two concepts. One is called assumed necessity. Assumed necessities are those things that we all assume have to be a certain way. And I don't know if you've noticed, um, Many times those things get upset or tipped over or sometimes just don't play out the way you thought they would. Assume necessity could be something, you know, you assume that uh, a healthy marriage is 50-50, right? Or we're each giving our best part. And that actually makes a lot of sense, right? Because you that's kind of the contract, the obligation, the belief you bought into. And yet eventually what you might find out is many times in a marriage, it's not 50-50. It might be you're pulling a lot more of the weight for a period of time. And so um, assume necessity is something that if if you're really going to fight how things have to be um, and not allow things to kind of rotate and move and be what they need to be for a given period of time – then, then you might set yourself up. I, I learned that by watching my father-in-law take care of my mother-in-law, where for a long period of time, it wasn't 50-50. It was, it was him doing everything for her. 
And so if you assume that it has to be a certain way, you'll probably end up being disappointed. Another rule that I teach uh, when I work with clients is this uh, concept, and you've heard me mention it before, I believe, on the show called logical force. And logical force is this idea that we were just talking about with Greg Murray where it feels logical and you use your logic to justify your behavior in your life or your in your marriage. But in reality, sometimes what's logical isn't moral, right? It might be logical to leave your partner if they do something uh, that's harmful to the relationship. It's just logical. And if you went and surveyed all of your your friends and your coworkers and everybody, the nine out of 10 of them would say, oh, I would leave him too for the exact same thing. But um, because it's logical, doesn't make it moral, meaning doesn't make it aligned to your moral code, to your moral belief system. And so a lot of us argue logic and we even – we see it being uh, argued in football and politics. All the logic of why it's OK to say something or do something politically – but it still might be immoral. It still might be wrong morally. It might be wrong to name call somebody and and you know embarrass them and shame them in the political world. Now, logically, it makes sense because we're trying to win an election. I mean, how many times during the elections do you hear someone say, well, I don't like what this person stands for, but logically we need a Republican in there. So I'm going to vote for the Republican. The problem with logical force is all you get in the end is logic. You don't get anything that's moral. You don't get anything that's ethical. You don't get anything that's healthy. Well, yeah, but then once we do the immoral thing to get the moral thing, then I will be more inclined to get more future good moral things. Oh, really? Is that how this works? So one of the rules I just suggest to a lot of uh, my clients and especially when we're trying to, to make better decisions in our lives is at some point we need to go back to what we value, to what our principles are, to what our highest principles are, the ones that drive our spirituality, the ones that drive our essence, the ones that drive our deeper sense of who we are. What, what is the decision that needs to be made here, even if it's a hard decision – what decision needs to be made that is moral, then that way we can at least have the support of our moral uh, cause and have what we call moral authority. I'd much rather in the end have moral authority than logical authority, if that makes sense. I'd rather do what's right than what everyone else deems is, uh, is smart or logical because sometimes the smartest things we do – they're immoral, and but incredibly logical. They're good for everybody except a few. And the sad thing about having true power with people and true power to lead people is at some point you'll find out your greatest leaders are the ones that made the moral decision, even to their detriment. They just did what was right. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. You and your spouse, do you do you share a lot of fun activities together? Do you have a lot of hobbies, toys, and leisure time where you two connect, or do you end up tuning out each other and turning away from each other during those times? I wanted to uh, continue a discussion about what are some things we can do to make sure that we actually share hobbies and, and have some some more fun activities together that bring us together. Uh, one of the things that I, I found, a lot of the clients I work with, 
they might one of the partners may have a hobby that the other doesn't participate in. And it seems like that hobby ends up dividing them and that division makes it so they never seem like they can do anything. One might be, you know, a cyclist. And so they're always out cycling and doing their 100 mile uh, cycle trips every weekend. So one of the rules I teach is that we need to energize what you can do together, not what you can't. Energy at times is scarce, so protect it, right? And uh, do some things that – and at least identify what you do like doing. Start spending a little more time in your life, in your conversations, talking about what you do like to do together, what does work. If you like going out to dinner, then make that – an actual hobby. Become foodies. Get into the food. You know, get into it, but do it as something that we can do together instead of obsessing about the one thing your partner does that they do without you. If your partner goes hunting, you can obsess till you die about the fact that that's all he likes to do. I lose him all October as he goes hunting. But the reality is there also are another 11 months that you do a lot of other things. So start building a, a really strong list of stuff that you do like to do together, um, things that are positive. Uh, find out, uh, you know, you, you may not go hunting with him, but you might go up to the camp where they hunt and you might go, you know, have a fun time hanging out with a bunch of people up there. It might be that you don't like necessarily hunting, but you like being outdoors, And it might not be that you even like being outdoors, but you like the memories of family gathering and, and, you know, getting your family ready to to send out to go to to go do some of these activities. Another thing you could do is start stretching your marriage by trying new things together. There is some pretty interesting research about the fact that if I do something crazy and energetic, if I jump uh, off with a bungee cord off of a bridge and I do that with my spouse, that's going to create some pretty amazing new chemistry for me, but my body will actually attribute it to the people I'm with. And so that is a simple way to bond myself a little bit closer to others is by trying some new things. A lot of us are so rigid in our minds about what we will do and what we won't do that we don't try something new. We We don't engage in other activities Try something. I remember trying to talk some friends into trying sushi, and now I can't get them to stop eating sushi. Every time we go out with them, all they want is sushi. But something as simple as that could be a really interesting new thing that you end up growing together. Remember, too, that you don't need to like something to do it. Uh, a lot of us are in this idea that, you know, life is short, so we need to do exactly what we like to do. But sometimes uh, I like doing things just because the people I'm with like doing it. I may not even participate, but I'll go along and um, I can I can thoroughly enjoy sitting there watching my granddaughter look at a llama for the 50th time. And I'm good with it. Let's just do that. So remember, sometimes it might even enhance your your ability to get close to somebody simply because we are doing something just simply for them. A lot of the hardest things in the world, like going to school, eating healthy food sometimes, exercising, practicing piano or whatever, taking your medicine, it's hard. But we do it because it's good for us. And also, by the way, once you start doing something consistently enough – Whether you like it or not, you usually become pretty good at it. Another thing is to find the joy in the being of the activity, not the doing. There is a lot of joy in being together, being supportive, being happy, being selfless, being unified. And a lot of those things are more valuable to us in the end than the doing of an activity. So remember that just being a human being is our goal, right? 
We want to be being um, involved, being active, being together instead of just human doings that are out there doing stuff day in and day out. So remember, basic stuff. Find the joy in the being, not the doing. Remember, you don't need to like it to do it. Uh, try some new things together. Stretch your marriage a little bit by doing something different and energize what you can do together, not just what you can't. Anyway, a little advice from your coach, your guide on the side. We'll take a break. Continue the journey with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Up in the morning and out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study him hard hoping to pay. Welcome back, everybody. Little Chuck Berry for you. Man, it never felt that fun to go to school. You know, last year, the Washington Post published an article that revealed that an analysis of 2013 federal data revealed that for the first time in over 50 years, the majority of U.S. public school students came from low-income families. So what is being done to help out these students? How is the poverty at home affecting students' abilities to succeed in school? These are the tough questions that are being asked and addressed by the Broader, Bolder Approach to Education, which is a national campaign. Uh, Dr. Elaine Weiss, the National Coordinator for Broader, Bolder Approach to Education, joins us now live from Washington, D.C. to discuss some of these questions. Dr. Weiss, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's uh, we we appreciate this this initiative because w- with these new with this new data, a, a maj- I mean a major amount of um, the people attending pr- public schools are these low income families. Talk about what is the impact of a person's uh, poverty level on their learning abilities, their uh, and how they can you know maneuver their way through the educational system. So poverty has big impact, and we've actually known this for quite a while. Um, James Coleman, who was tasked by Congress in 1966 with trying to figure out why achievement gaps were happening then, um, much to his own surprise, uh, discovered that much of the problem did not actually reside in schools. And when we think about what schools were like and how segregated they were in 66, that says quite a bit. Um, What Coleman reported back was that he believed that more than half, roughly two-thirds of the drivers of achievement gaps uh, were family and community factors related to poverty and education. Hmm. Um, No one since Coleman has seriously disputed that, but we do know a lot more. Um, We know a lot more about how poverty and education interact. Um, And more recently, we even have neuroscience looking at how um, continued living in poverty, especially when kids are very young, when there's the most formative years of brain development, actually has physical impact on their brain development. Oh, wow. In other words, this kind of living in poverty, living in toxic stress, if we think about kids living in families where, um, as I think you guys just broadcast, um, parents are working full-time, maybe even more than one job. They still aren't sure that they can put a square meal on the table all the time. They aren't sure they can buy shoes. Mm. Um, They often aren't sure they can pay rent. Um, Living in that kind of stress, especially as a very young kid, is what they're calling toxic. Um, and obviously has huge impacts. Um, and then there are uh, the many others. There's the fact that 
uh, kids whose parents can't afford to be around obviously can't afford good child care. So those right. kids don't get the nurturing and stimulation. Um, those kids are more likely to be sick, less likely to see a doctor. So they miss school more often. And when they're in school, they're not as able to focus because they're not as healthy. Yeah. Um, oh. And there are myriad other examples. And it doesn't um, – because some people would sit there and say, well, just – I mean, some people were poor and they just pulled themselves up by the bootstraps. But it's it's not like that. I mean, if the, if the majority of these people don't have a good meal – and I, we did uh, have somebody on recently that just feeding them better meals – you know, through the WIC program or other programs, all of a sudden uh, their their scores go up, their abilities go up. But just the ability to have a parent have enough time to sit down with you and help you on your homework. I mean, that's a exactly. whole other thing. Or have a quiet place to do homework. Right. And when you're talking about kids, forget the extreme. We've now got more kids than we've ever seen in this country that live in homeless shelters. Okay. So we can assume they don't have a quiet right. space to do homework, let alone sort of the mental bandwidth to do it. But if you're living in an overcrowded apartment and you're living with two families and you've got a total of two bedrooms, you have no place to do homework. Mm-hmm. And if your electricity gets turned off, you don't right. have a place to do homework. Yeah. And, I mean, it's hard anyway to do homework with your kids, especially like in high school. They're bringing home math assignments. And I'm like, what? What is that? Yeah, all it, of us. So, I mean, I, it's, it's the strange phenomenon even for somebody that is educated and isn't in poverty it's hard anyway is now we've already tried to address these issues right i mean this has been this is the whole no child left behind kind of thing wasn't it weren't we already because we've known this since the 60s uh what's different about what you're trying to do versus what we've been doing the last 10 years 15 years well, to be clear, for the last 10 years, we've frankly sort of been doing the opposite of this. So we did have an era, post-Coleman, post-Brown versus Board of Education, where we understood as a country, pretty much, that this was a big issue, that hmm. poverty posed problems. And we responded with some really powerful policies. We had a war on poverty, for example. Uh, we desegregated our schools, and we um, passed the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, ESEA, which is what it was called before No Child Left Behind. Um, And it was passed explicitly as a civil rights bill to help schools tackle and mitigate the impacts of poverty. And it did have a huge impact. So we have to be careful here not to say it didn't work. Right? Um, Did it do the whole thing? No. But over those 20 years, we cut black-white achievement gap in half. So it had a very major impact. Yeah. The problem is we then declared that because it hadn't fixed everything that it didn't work, and we stopped doing it. Yeah. We stopped declaring a war on poverty. We stopped desegregating schools, and we radically ratcheted back the support for poor schools and eventually transitioned um, to No Child Left Behind, which has a very different emphasis, where the emphasis is on um, we need higher standards and we need greater accountability and actually less support to enable schools to reach those. Hmm. And the result has been twofold. One is we stopped closing that race achievement gap. It's been stagnant for about the past 30 years. And meanwhile, as income inequality has grown in this country, the income-based gap has exploded and is now more than twice as big as the race-based gap. Golly. It's, yes. Isn't that funny? I mean, that's how that's how these systems work, right? We it's 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 productively moving one you know part of the the equation the problem we need to solve and then somebody else comes in changes it and throws out everything else and we go i guess push stronger you know stronger standards i guess more pressure was then being put i guess with no child left behind on the teachers right then and and focus was more on the teachers than the students 
tremendous, uh, tremendous pressure on teachers. And it's interesting because the past decade, I think, has really been dominated by a perspective that uh, those who the strongest proponents of this, let's focus uh, very heavily on standards and accountability and um, less on poverty, actually coined the term no excuses to explain mm. this. And um, what they meant by no excuses was a really great teacher can do this. Um, there should be no excuses. We can't excuse bad schools um, by raising the issue of poverty. Now, unfortunately, in practical terms, what that meant was that everyone except for teachers was excused. Right. The number of kids in poverty who, as you know, are much, much more than we've ever had before. Right. Um, and also for the impact of that poverty. So what it did was teachers have really always been on the front lines of trying to counter the effects of poverty. But now we stuff them on the front lines with no backup system. And mm. then we blame them. And that's really what this decade, unfortunately, and I think mostly inadvertently, has come to be. Wow. And then so all this. Yeah. We're at a point where we can really we have an opportunity now to change that. And that's really what you're trying to do with a broader, bolder approach, right? Yes, that that is exactly what we're trying to do. Uh, we feel and I think those of us across the education uh, space feel that the finally, after many years, um, the reauthorization of ESEA um, from No Child Left Behind to ESSA or the Every Student Succeeds Act provides us some really key opportunities to shift gears. Hmm. Um, it pulls back a lot on the emphasis on testing. Um, it doesn't attach as many consequences to testing, so there's not nearly as much time. There doesn't need to be as much time spent or pressure attached to tests. Um, teachers can focus on the other things that they've long been wanting to do. Um, but just as important, it recognizes that every layer of government has an important and relevant role to play in education, and we need to make sure that those are done correctly. So it gives states and districts and even individual schools more responsibility and authority to figure out how education works best. Um, it also, however, gives them a lot of responsibility. And so yeah. ESSA offers us some real opportunities, but it also presents some real challenges um, for school districts and states that maybe don't have the capacity or maybe don't have the political will to take these tests. Mm. Okay, this is good stuff. Let's let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Elaine Weiss, um, who is walking us through uh, a, a new movement, really, a, a broader, bolder approach to education. She is uh, – you can find out more information about it, by the way, at boldapproach.org, helping uh, to truly create – it's a national com- campaign that's about evidence-based strategies – to mitigate the impacts of poverty-related disadvantages, making it making it so that uh, we can take the real data, the real facts, the best practices, and implement them to take on some of the impact of poverty and what it's doing to our educational systems. Make it more more fair, more uh, elevating the opportunities for everybody to learn and to grow and to pull themselves out of poverty. We'll take a break. More with Dr. Elaine Weiss when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about the impact poverty has on uh, on the education of our youth and our children. And amazing um, numbers that that 
basically just validate the fact that low-income families struggle creating a healthy uh, learning environment for their children. And that has to be dealt with. And we can't just keep, you know, pushing more, you know, standards and more uh, teachers have to perform or you're just not a good teacher. The reality is we have to deal with the fact that their families don't have some of the tools, the information, the food, the settings, the environment. And until we're dealing with the whole issue, we are probably never going to get a whole, complete, healthy solution. Joining us is Dr. Elaine Weiss from um, a broader, bolder approach to education. And uh, if you go to boldapproach.org, it is a national, um, it's a national basic campaign to help perpetuate a different approach, a different framework to education. Dr. Elaine Weiss, thank you so much for being with us. Great to be here. Talk to us again about what uh, what your proposals are going to be. What are some of the things that we could be doing to make it broader, more and bolder, and make sure that we're we are tackling the poverty issues as we're also trying to educate people? So we see this as um, sort of three intertwined sets of policy changes that need to happen. Um, the first is we need to close these out-of-school opportunity gaps that we've been talking about because opportunity gaps are really the problems driving achievement gaps. So we need to ensure that all kids have access uh, and their parents have good access to early childhood experiences and supports, um, that they have health support, that they have nutrition support, as you've emphasized, and also that in the hours that they're out of school, they have enriching opportunities because I know that my kids have great opportunities, but it's expensive and challenging and many kids don't. Um, we need to enhance in-school equity. Um, another problem is that we have a funding system in this country that really unfortunately exacerbates and compounds the disadvantages that kids growing up in poverty have rather than compensating for them. Um, we need to focus on building strong teacher, teachers and leaders in schools rather than mostly weeding out the bad ones. Of course, it's important to weed out bad ones, but it should be mostly about growing, developing, and supporting them, and also providing incentives for them to serve in tougher schools, which right now, as we've discussed, we make actually look like a really bad deal. Um, We need accountability systems that foster all of that, um, and we need all schools to be transparent about how they treat kids and how they're educating kids, whether they're charter schools or regular district public schools. And then finally, and I think this is really critical, we need to bridge some of the gaps between schools and communities, which means we need to be paying attention to issues like race and segregation, both in school and out of school, because they have a very big impact on how all kids learn, especially in this diverse world. We need our kids to have diverse schools that model for them. Um, And we need to ensure that community voices have a central place at the policy table. The policies need to be built on community needs and assets and guidance and not sold to them or put on them. Yeah. How do you, I mean, that's that's a huge list, even just the beginning of your list, which was about closing the gap of, of out-of-school opportunities. I mean, just the concept of getting early childhood child care and maybe, uh, you know, meals for these families or for these children, just that, or after-school programs, every one of those, I'm sure you're getting pushback from other people, right? I don't know so much that we get pushback. I would actually say more that there's widespread agreement that these things are needed. They um, need to be done. Very, very little opposition today to the concept that 
if we don't get kids ready for kindergarten, they won't do well in kindergarten. I think there's practically universal, very broad bipartisan support. The problem is we don't do it. Okay. Um, so we need to shift our national focus and say just as very few parents in this country could afford a high-quality K-12 education if they had to do it on their own dime, very few, if any, can afford quality child care or quality pre-K. Um, we have to be doing that. We have to model, look at states. Um, and there are some great ones. There's Oklahoma, Vermont, um, New Jersey that are serving either all low-income kids or even all kids in very high-quality preschool. Uh, we're the wealthiest country in the world. This is not something we can't do. It's right. something that we're not doing. Is it? And is that political will? What is that? Why, why are we not doing it? If, if the research is there, if it was succeeding before, where is, is – I guess that's when you get back down into the community support and get parents more involved, people more involved talking with their legislators? Part of it is definitely that. Um, part of it is, you know, the, the culture in this country has long been much more individualistic and family-oriented than societally oriented. And as a result, part of the perception is that this is a family issue. Um, luckily for us, uh, or and unluckily, there's much more poverty than we used to have. So there's much more understanding that it's not possible for families to take this on. Right. Uh, but there's also a lot more research just showing that even for middle class families, it's out of reach. So I think as there's better data, as there's better research, um, the political will, I think, is coming together. We do have a lot more of this support than we had, but we need to make some really big jumps, mm-hmm. not little incremental steps, but saying every kid needs quality child care, It's. Period. It also seems like because those in poverty don't have time, don't have the maybe the resources, the information to maybe even go make their own fight, right? So we're not hearing from the squeaky wheel necessarily. We just are experiencing it in the system. This is very true, and I would say that even those of us who are not living in poverty often don't have the time to fully right. educate ourselves on a wide range of issues and then push on them. It's, an, it's a full-time job for many people. Um, but we are seeing uh, one of the things that we're doing at BBA is we are exploring and highlighting cases of communities where this is happening, you know, from birth or from early childhood all the way through high school, the communities engaged, evidence-based poverty mitigation strategies are in place after school is available and aligned with what goes on during the school day. Meals are built into everything as needed. Um, And so we see that this does happen. And when we encourage communities rather than sculpting them to do this, and when we align policies with what they want, it can happen and be incredibly successful. Mm. And we really, really lift up every kid. I mean, in these places, they are narrowing achievement gaps. They're boosting achievement. uh, They're seeing great high school graduation rates. And they're seeing really uh, enriched kids come out of this. That's powerful. What would you say, as we kind of wrap this up, we have about another minute or so, what would you say, what should we be doing as parents and those that want to become or or be more involved, become part of the solution? I would say one of the things you could do is, as you just suggested, go to our website, boldapproach.org, have a look at the case studies of the places that we're looking at. And they're very diverse, from small rural places to large urban places that are doing this. Um, feel free to contact the folks there. Look at some of the institutions that are involved. Look at the churches, uh, the businesses, the YMCAs, the Boys and Girls Clubs. Those places exist in all of your communities. Reach out to them. Find out how you can be involved. And when this issue comes up locally and at the state level, please weigh in and tell, tell your representatives that we need these public investments. 
Yeah, love that. That and that's again get involved and get informed. That's what we try to do on the show. Dr. Elaine Weiss, thank you so much. And again, everybody go to boldapproach.org. It's a great uh, resource for you to learn more about really what does work, what helps. Thanks again, Dr. Weiss. We're going to have to take this on sometime, aren't we? When you think about how we will do this, you're going to pay and make this work with our children now, or you're going to pay and have to make it work later with an uneducated, more impoverished workforce. This has got to be dealt with. And again, we can we can cry the principle of accountability, but there's also this concept of fairness and ability. Um, I always teach where there's a will, there's a way to make this work. And we, we can find the will, uh, we just have to find the way. The the will might simply be understanding the, the problem in a more broad way. Instead of just thinking that people that want to get educated could get educated and people that don't, don't, it's not like that. Imagine waking up in a one-bedroom apartment with five of you there. Imagine having your dad, if you have one at home, already gone to work. He's left at five in the morning to go drive a truck or a bus and um, mom wakes you up and you're all frantically trying to hurry to get to school and mom's got to get to work and she basically wakes everybody up and you have to drop off your little sister at the neighbor who's a relative that'll babysit your sister. You don't see her for the rest of the day, and then you have to run to school. And hopefully, as a 10-year-old, you remember to make something to eat. And hopefully what you grabbed was more than a Pop-Tart. But it probably isn't. And you get to school, and then you're supposed to remember your bag and your everything else. And did you get that paper signed by your parents so we can go to the all we and off we go. And then that child is going to sit there and hopefully have done their homework the night before with a house that's too busy, too loud, too noisy, without sometimes adult supervision, and they're supposed to make it? And then your big complaint is going to be, yeah, well, if they cared, that 10-year-old would just get her done. No. So they don't, have the, they don't have the health. They don't have... They, they're not being – their basic needs aren't being dealt with. If they have a learning disability, nobody will even know about it till many years into school. And that will only be found by a teacher or a school district. So it's not, it's not even, right? It's not an even playing field. And this is then what goes on. This is the pain. And it's not happening in just one, you know, apartment. It's happening – in half of the kids attending public school. It's a big deal. So don't just think you can discount it. And when you sit there and you you might be, you know, doing a lot better and your kids are going to these public schools, but in the end, too, they still have half of their classmates that are suffering like this. So how do you fix it? Well, let's just let our politicians do it. That's what they're here for. Have you looked at your politicians lately? No, it's time to get involved. It's time to pick up your game and get involved and care and start understanding that problems are more complex than Republican or Democrat, black or white. 
rich or poor. Let's just integrate everybody. Just integrate. Well, great. We integrate, but we still have poverty issues and cultural issues. And, I mean, how many times would that – that would be fantastic to have better integration and uh, have your children be able to see multicultural uh, families and multicultural experience. I think it would be fantastic. And it still won't solve the problem that some kids – half the kids there aren't eating. Imagine you going to work and not having a meal. And not going to have a meal because you don't even know who's paying for lunch. It's tough. It's tough. So let's become part of the solution, right? I don't want to just sit there and complain about it, but we got to do something. And uh, my goal is just to help you at least understand it's a bigger issue. It's a bigger issue. And our hearts are big enough to bring in the compassion to create some of these solutions. They're complicated. I get it. There's a lot of people fighting for the money behind all this. But it doesn't mean you can't have a heart and you can't care. You should care and get involved. We'll take a break, folks. Hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Let me give you some principles of life if you want to be happy, okay? Four principles that I uh, have found. They're not new, they're, and it's not grit, uh, but it might lead to grit. Uh, four lessons of happy people. If you want to be happy and you – because there's a lot we can teach our kids, right? And we're killing ourselves trying to give them every opportunity in the world. But if I, if I could just only teach my children four things – These are the four things that, boy, I think in the end are worth all the money in the world. First and foremost, if I could teach my kids to just be self-aware, meaning they could understand how they influence others, if they could see their strengths, if they understood their weaknesses, if they really were into understanding who they are, if they understood their feelings, had their, their own insights into who they are, their contributions in life, their their greatest uh, strengths, their greatest weaknesses. If I could teach self-awareness, boy, then I would be ahead of the game. If I had a child that understood what he did well, what he doesn't do so well, and hopefully help that child also learn to to take that self-awareness and develop it into, you know, strength and go be learned and tutored and educated on those things, how cool would that be? Are your children self-aware? Do they understand the impact they have on their friends? Do they understand what their strengths are really? Or do they just kind of shy away from them and don't want to go there? Do they know if, if they're good socially? Do they know if they're good academically? Do they know what, what they're good at academically? Do they know what, they come, what comes natural to them? Are they numbers people? Do they get the numbers? Do they, are they, do they love language? Self-awareness is a powerful, powerful trait. And so if we could teach self-awareness, that helps us understand us. One way to do this is to work with your kids and ask them questions about themselves. Like, what foods do you really like? Which foods do you notice, really, that, uh, that don't, don't suit you, that, that aren't good for you, that you eat? Then when you eat them, have you noticed what you feel after you eat them? What, uh, what things impact your moods? These are great topics of conversation, things that we could be discussing with our kids. 
try to identify from what they're saying about themselves, what do they feel like they do the best? What do they feel when they're out playing on a team? What insecurities do they have? Where do they feel most secure? Where do they feel most at home? How do they impact others? Just conversations. And by the way, allowing a child to feel what they're feeling. If they're sad, don't try to get them to stop feeling sad. Have them talk about their sadness. Figure out where it came from. How did they get to that feeling? Anyway, self-aware is one of the great lessons I think we should all be teaching. Another is that we, we want to teach our kids to learn to care. How many times have you asked your kid, what do you want for dinner? Like, I don't care. Well, I know you don't, but I need you to kind of care. <laughs> what do you want to do when you grow up? I don't know. I don't care. At some point, caring is, is more than just being nice, right? At some point, learning to care is, is, is something bigger than that. Caring is also, it's the great motivator, right? When somebody actually cares about something else or someone else, it actually drives emotion. To care means we know more uh, about ourselves, but we also kind of know what drives us. It's a sense of responsibility. You know, having a dog. As a kid growing up, I cared for my dog, and even though I didn't care for cleaning up after him because I cared for the dog, I wanted the dog to have the best life. I, I created more motivation. I was more in uh, a connection with this dog because of that. So we've got to teach our kids to care about stuff, to care about their own gears, their own equipment, to care about their own thinking. Some things they, they can care about are their thoughts. We care about thoughts. When we care about our thoughts, we have thoughts that we believe in. We espouse thoughts. We fight for our th- thinking. We can care about things, you know, our toys, our bikes, our stuff. And we try to preserve the things we care about. We can also care about people. And when I care about people, we end up taking care of people. We listen to people. We serve people. So if we could teach our kids to be self-aware and to care, holy cow, then we're on to something. We could also teach them to dare, right, to grow, to try to be stronger, to reach out, to risk. And then we could teach them to share, to serve others, to connect to give of what they have to others. Self-aware, care, share, dare. Basic skills, folks. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. McKenna Bausch joins us uh, to, again, tweak our minds a bit. Hey. How are you? Doing well. Good to have you. Yeah, it's our, nice Our top-notch producer and social media guru. Oh, well. I think you do me more credit than I deserve. No, excellent to have you. Uh, good to have you here. Talk about you were going to bring up this weird idea about languages dying. Yeah. So a lot of times when we think of dead languages, we think of kids Latin. sitting in class <laughs> studying Latin. I love that was my favorite subject. You are one of the rare few. I'm fluent in a dead language. Well, there you go. And the thing is, now more and more people um, are going to be able to say that as well. Right. Right now, um, there's predictions by scientists that 90% of all of the world's languages will have died out by the end of this century alone. 90%? 90%. What? Yeah. We're That's looking crazy. at mass extinction when it comes to language right Why? Now. Just because we're all moving toward a unified one or two or five languages? Yeah. So right now, there's approximately 7,000 languages wow. that we're aware of on earth and about 
the top 100 are the only ones that are really widely spoken. And even within that, you have more and more that are becoming less and less used mm. that are dying off as we sort of center around what are called these metropolitan languages, the big names yeah. you know, that we all are familiar with. Like English. English, maybe Spanish. Spanish, Mandarin Chinese. Yeah. Although um, kids aren't even speaking English anymore. They're just sending emojis over their phones. Yeah. Well, emojish is another language. Oh, definitely. So that is sad because you lose your language, mm -hmm. you lose your culture. Yeah. And so that's one of the big concerns that they have is that these languages are dying out faster than we can record them. Oh, no. And so you're losing the record of cultures entirely. You're losing all of the knowledge that those cultures had, a lot of it in terms of the plants and animals and their environment of where it's from. And so you lose medical information that we could use that has to be rediscovered. You're losing, um, I mean, just people's ability to communicate one with each other, to oh, understand how these people thought. And the thing is, is you have a lot of people now who are on Earth and they – are the only ones who can speak their mother language now. And so they can't even talk to anybody yeah. in the language that they grew up with. And I mean, I guess you could archive your language, but then it would still only be known by one professor at some yeah, it's, university. It's still – the thing is though is that's just such an undertaking that a lot of these people, they're out in more remote areas and they're harder to reach. Well, and is, I guess is that just because the markets demand that you speak one of these top ten languages? Um, that's – you know, part of it, one of the most interesting reasons that these are dying out is actually because of climate change. Really? Yeah. Um, a lot of these, you know, languages that are dying out are in these uh, ecologically threatened areas. And as seawater levels rise, they ha these people have to move inland. They integrate more with mm. other communities. And all of a sudden their language starts dying out. Mm. And so you have the environment – Changing, changing our languages and the culture. Yep, and taking away the sad thing is taking away concepts that we don't even have. I I speak Spanish, and there's certain ways to talk about love and boyfriend and girlfriend that are so different in Spanish than they are in English. There's we have a word like love, mm -hmm. but you can love a burrito and you can love your wife. It's not, the and same we don't thing. differentiate. <laughs> you know, isn't it sad? We don't even know what we're losing. Yeah, and that's, you know, one of the things is it's going to be gone before we realize that unless we really start fighting to save these languages in any way that we can. But now we but we've got other we've got other words now that are so wonderful like square up. I don't even know if I know what that That just means. means get ready to fight me. Oh, okay. My son says it to me every morning, square up, dad. I'm like you want me to punch you. But he just it's just I don't know what it is. It's just being sounded hit. Irish. Square up, man. You want me to punch you? Do you want me to punch you in the face? Yeah, no. That's sad. Mm -hmm. So any way to fix this? Change global warming apparently. Change global warming um, and really just encouraging communities um, to speak their indigenous languages as well. A lot of the effects that we're seeing now are also caused by – you know, decades and centuries before this yeah. of oppression of um, indigenous people, trying to force assimilation of mm -hmm. different cultures. Uh, that's a big problem that is being faced with the um, First Nations people in Canada. Uh, 
for years right. they had forced education things that they were these kids weren't allowed to speak their indigenous languages and now nobody can. Yeah, and we are in our intolerance to everybody has to speak English, but now we have refugees coming, immigrants coming in and it might we might lose a lot if we don't allow them to at least maintain their languages. Yeah, we definitely we just need to do everything we can to celebrate linguistic diversity. Man, McKenna, great insight. Thanks for uh, that. I mean, really, folks, did you even think of that? It's powerful. What we lose when we, I mean, 7,000 languages, we could lose 90% of them. Crazy. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be back. Isolation pushes you till every muscle aches. Down the only road it ever takes. But everybody's scared of this place and staying away. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, we've got a great uh, topic here about introversion. And, uh, you know, what, what better source than uh, somebody that wrote the book on introversion in the classroom, How to Avoid Burnout and Encourage Success, uh, her name is Jessica Onard, and she is a, a, a teacher, a past teacher, and now an educator that educates uh, teachers and I guess all of us about how to be um, more attentive to our own emotional needs. And one of those is introversion versus extroversion. If you are an introverted person, and again, she taught us earlier that introversion and extroversion is a spectrum, right? So it's kind of a continuum. I mean, you might you might not uh, necessarily be an introvert or an extrovert. Maybe you're a little bit of both. But what it usually has more to do with than whether you like people or not, it's more about how you convert energy. Some people that are introverts, uh, they might convert their energy by being more alone, doing more solo kind of based activities or with just a few people. Um, An extrovert is somebody that needs to kind of be getting their energy from outside of themselves, working with others or interacting with others or kind of in a more public way. And so um, it's a powerful lesson I think that we've all learned. And Jessica, again, we appreciate you being back with us. Thanks for spending some time with us. Yeah, it's been great so far. Teach us um, one of the things that you found uh, in in the book Quiet. It was just a book, and all of a sudden it, you realize, holy cow, maybe the reason I've been burning out is because I didn't know this, this side of my introversion, extroversion. What was the biggest lesson that, that came to your mind about uh, your introversion that you wish you had known maybe 10, 15 years earlier? Yeah, really, a lot of it has to go back to how I was, not just as a teacher, but as a student myself when I was in high school. Um, I was a very quiet student. I was the you know, the kind of student who always had a book in her hand and was kind of in the corner reading. Mm-hmm. And I always felt a little out of step with my peers. And I think in reading Quiet, it helped me realize that my not only feeling a little, you know, kind of like the odd one out as a student, um, but also burning out in high school. You know, when I was in um, my junior and senior year, I actually left the high school and took classes at the community college. And hmm. one of the reasons I did that was so that I could control my schedule because the highly interactive group-oriented schedule that was part of the high school environment didn't suit me very well, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to be forced to interact with people all the time. I so I went to the community college, 
Um, at the time, I just thought I was weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just figured I'm just the odd kid out. I'm the, you know, the bookworm, the, the dork, the, you know, all of those things. But later on, and after I, you know, left high school, went into teaching itself, um, and was still burnt out from teaching. And then I came across Susan Cain's book, and I realized, okay, there's a reason for this, and it has nothing to do with me being weird. Yeah. It has everything. I, mean, I still think I'm a little weird, but it has everything to do with I was not taking care of myself, and I wasn't acknowledging the importance of how I needed to take care of myself. Well, and how difficult to think you're carrying a label that you're you're a weird kind of dork when in reality you're just the perfect you. You're just you. And and, and you didn't even – because we don't. In our society, we don't always honor kind of the quiet thinker as much as we do the loud comedian in the class. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and it must have been torture for you to sit in some classes where the extroverts could just keep getting the attention and drawing more attention and really impacting your own energy. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, we live in a a society that, you know, whether you're talking in kindergarten or in corporate culture, there's this underlying message that to be successful, you have to be social. You know, when you when you think of a successful person, when when students see images of successful people in pop culture or in corporate or, you know, in their own lives, a lot of times it's kind of this this very gregarious personality who's out there and, you know, go get them and very much um, being vocal about what they want and going and getting it. And for some people, that just isn't natural. But when you start receiving those messages from a very, very early age, you know, from from pre-K or kindergarten, where you have a student who may prefer to work alone, but then they're saying, oh, you know, don't be so antisocial, go Mm -hmm. play with your friends, that gets absorbed and internalized. And over time, it turns into, well, what I want to do is wrong. Right. What I want to do isn't going to get me where I want to be in life. And there's something, yeah, there's something about me that's wrong. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and I don't think it's malicious or or intentional. Right. I think it's just a product of our culture. Well, and maybe timing too, because now we might actually talk more about introversion versus extroversion than we ever did twenty, thirty years ago. So, I mean, that that I guess is an important part of your book and your lesson is. Make sure we are identifying in our classroom if there are students that maybe are a little bit more introverted or extroverted. Talk to their parents. Do they – instead of just saying they're antisocial, uh, go find out from the parents. Do they tend to be an introvert mm-hmm. and ask yeah, those and questions? parents know what an introvert is. Exactly. And then maybe get them some education like by reading the book Quiet. I mean there's so many lessons in there. Even Harvard Business School was – talked about and discussed because their very entry requirements to get into the business school pretty much set up only introverts or only extroverts could succeed there. Um, mm-hmm. Introverts need not apply basically because most of their work was being done in committee, in teams. Yeah, exactly. And one of the things that Susan Cain did really well in that book was she looked at a lot of different uh, industries and a lot of different cultures, um, like corporate culture and people who fit into these different areas within our adult society and just looked at, here's how it's set up so that an extrovert will thrive and an introvert will struggle. Hmm. And so one of my intentions in writing introversion in the classroom was to kind of take those lessons that she was showing me um, 
in the adult world and bringing them back to the classroom and to the, the kids that are getting these same messages but from a very early age. Hmm. What would you suggest teachers do then if they if they maybe to detect an introverted child and and or parents uh, do to make sure that their children, if they are introverted, are getting the best experience they can in school? Well, you know, it's, it's hard to give teachers one more thing to do. Right. Um, and it's also hard to tell necessarily when you have an introverted student versus an extroverted student for a couple of reasons. First, because it does fall on a spectrum. You know, I may be an introvert, but maybe I'm having an extroverted day. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, if I'm an introvert who's been receiving these messages my whole life that I would be better off if I act more extroverted, you might not be able to tell I'm an introvert until after school when I go home and crash. But during school, I could be the most outgoing person, gregarious person in the world. Right. Um, I think a lot of introverts get very good at hiding their introversion because they don't want to be seen as different, especially when they're teenagers. Um, I think when when students are younger, um, like kindergarten level, it's a little easier because they're still at an age where they gravitate towards what they want to do, yeah. as opposed to necessarily falling into what they feel like they should be doing. So if you are a teacher of younger kids, you know, pay attention to what they want to do naturally. And if you happen to have older kids, the best thing to do is to start a dialogue and have them figure out for themselves what they are, because they may be surprised, yeah. you know, um, Find a way so that you can ask them, so that you can start talking. You're like, hey, I'm an introvert or I'm an extrovert. What are you? And what does that mean? Let's talk about it. Uh, I actually have a quiz up on my website that teachers can give to their students and just the quick 15-question quiz that helps them determine where do I fall on the spectrum. And I think for older students, it's, it's an important exercise to even just talk about it a little bit and say that it's okay to be different from the person next to you. We're all a little bit different, and we all deal with our energy in different ways. Yeah. is What is the website's name? Where do we, where do we go for that? Uh, the, it's Adaptive Introvert, so um, A-D-A-P-T-I-V-E, and then Introvert. Okay. So AdaptiveIntrovert.com is uh, the mm-hmm. website, and then go on and take a test. And I guess really the, the, the real gist of it is that parents could could take a bigger role in helping their child identify what they are and Again, it's, it doesn't have to be a label. It's not good or bad. It's just kind of, it's a, it's a, it's just who they are. It's how they, it's how they convert energy, really. And uh, that that's going to be really important to know long run. If if we had to wrap it up, what would be the one thing you'd say that all of us should remember, uh, Jessica, to make sure that we are we are um, giving everybody the best shot to make it through life. Uh, know thyself and. Uh, be open to starting a dialogue and don't be afraid to use yourself as an example. You know, I think introverted teachers, especially, but introverts everywhere are in a position to be advocates to younger people who don't necessarily understand where they fall on the spectrum or what to do with that information Mm. once they have it. That's a great, that's a great rule to use yourself as an example, because then you'll lose some of the shame too. You don't, I mean, there's this weird shame behind it. Like you were even saying, feeling like something's wrong with you, but uh, it really Mm -hmm. is a strength as well. We appreciate it. Yes, absolutely. Jessica, thank you so much for your great work, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. You Been bet. Great. You bet. Jessica Onard, and again, the book, um, it's its really going to help you blow up the burnout, which, heaven forbid, you know, we all need. We, we don't want to go down in our uh, in our 
passion. We don't want to lose something we love doing. And if you've been called to teach or anything you've been called to do, the burnout will hit if you're not managing your energy right. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, a little coach's corner for you here about uh, this um, introversion versus extroversion. It was a big learning for me, too. I I never I always thought I was an extrovert because I, you know, I could do I could do OK with people. You know, I'm a highly trained professional. But what I realized, too, reading that exact same book, Quiet, is it's not about if you like people or not. It's about where your energy conversion comes from. Also in the book, another thing I learned about is a, is a concept called high sensitivity. And um, one of the things they're finding out is that some people are just more highly sensitive to information, to stimuli, to other uh, – to, to inputs from their world, right? So a highly sensitive person, it doesn't mean you're nice. doesn't mean, oh, he's so nice. It just means – that you notice more. And about 20% of the population, actually, uh, Elaine Aaron, who's been on the show a couple of times, and if you want more information about it, you can go look up Matt Townsend and Elaine Aaron, A-R-O-N. We have uh, an entire show with her about this high sensitivity topic. But one of the things I find is that um, one of the reasons I, I tend to be an introvert and I like being alone at times is because... I get overstimulated with information. There's, I pick up a lot of information. And for me, it's actually a really good thing because it's how I make a living, right? I work and coach clients, and when I'm talking to them and working with them, I can pick up a lot of information about them. The other problem, though, is I pick up a lot of information that's not relevant, like the person walking outside the window of this radio show. So when I'm sitting here, I'm talking, I'm processing. I'm also noticing what's on my screens in front of me. I'm noticing Ben rolling his eyes. I notice people coming up the stairs by my window and all of this information's coming in. I notice when we have people waiting to come in the studio, all of this is going on. But if I'm picking up, let's just say two times more than maybe the average person is processing and picking up, it's going to exhaust me. And it will exhaust me. Like I can be in a room and I can know somebody is mad at me or at their partner or whatever. And the minute I see that, my body starts watching them more, picking up more about them, knowing more about them. And uh, they call that high sensitivity. Well, when you're highly sensitive then, all of a sudden when I'm done coaching, I go right into my office, which I leave dark. And um, I sit in the dark, and nobody gets why I'll sit in the dark for 20 minutes. Um, but it's mainly because I'm trying to de I'm trying to destimulate. I'm trying to unwind. And and one of the fastest ways I've ever found to unwind is shut my eyes, not sleep per se, but that's not a bad thing. But if I just close my eyes, and Elaine Aaron brings up the fact that 60 percent of our data comes through our eyes. So if you would just shut your eyes off, a huge portion of your stimulation would go away. Have you ever noticed that once you turn your phone on, it just – you become more and more needy and addicted to it? 
uh, because that's information. There's energy, there's light coming in, and all of a sudden it turns on all of your systems. So I usually like to just destimulate. I'll do the craziest thing every Sunday morning before we take our kids when we're trying to get our kids to go to church and we're getting everybody dressed and everybody's getting in the car. Everybody's stressed. Everybody needs to hurry and get dressed. Put your belt on. Tons of tension. <sighs> then I, when we drive to church, we drive in. I drop everyone off at the building, and then I go park. I go find a parking place. And it buys me about two more minutes. And in those two minutes, <sighs> big deep breath. If I had another minute, I might close my eyes for a sec and just destimulate. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Good leadership begins in one place. It's inside of you. If you can learn to lead ourselves, and uh, then we will have the knowledge and the confidence to lead others. And even if we don't have the title that is so often associated with the leadership, you still can be the leader. That's according to our next guest, Clay Scroggins, who's a pastor from Atlanta and author of the book, How to Lead When You're Not in Charge. He joins us today to teach us how we can lead ourselves and become great leaders for others. Clay, thank you so much for being with us today. So so excited about it, uh, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. This is you bet. a thrill for me. Thanks. It's pretty cool, I think, um, what you're doing, because— uh, you're you're coming at this from uh, you're a you're a pastor in Atlanta, but you you I mean because a lot of us are in religious settings and we're um, we go to church and we may not have like the lead role the leadership role and even at business or even in our families or at work or at school or whatever how how do I mean, how do you, first of all, I guess, frame what a leader is? Because yeah. you, you continually say it's not about having the authority necessarily, because sometimes you don't, but you can still be the leader. Yeah, that, that, that's really the first step in all of this to me, is you've got to understand what leadership really is. And I think we all do, I think we all understand it uh, in a conscious way, but it is deep within us to believe that I would say to believe as this, but also to act as though leadership and authority are one and the same. Hmm. Because as kids, we just grow up believing that, you know, the teacher was in charge and so she's the leader. Our parents were in charge and they're the leader. The bus driver's in charge and he's the leader. The principal's in charge and she's the leader. The coach, it goes on and on. And so we grow up just believing, okay, well, the way you become a leader is to get in charge. You got oh, you got to be in charge of something. That's how you that's how you lead something. But when you start when you back out and go to answer your question, what what is leadership? We all know that there are people that are in charge that are not leading and there are people that are not in charge that are actually leading. So I think we all know consciously on an intellectual level, that leadership goes beyond authority, that it's something greater than authority. And so obviously the word that's most commonly used is influence, that leadership really is its influence. Yeah. And that's the subtitle of this book that I've written, How to Leave When You're Not in Charge. The subtitle is Leveraging Influence When You Lack Authority. Oh, yeah. And the, the great news about that, to me, it's a very hopeful message because 
if you find yourself in a place today where you're not in charge, good news, it doesn't mean you aren't a leader and it doesn't mean that you can't lead, but you actually can lead from whatever position that you're in, that you don't have to wait to be in charge in order to lead. And I mean, I guess too, uh, and I can't remember where I've heard this definition, but leaders tend to have followers, right? So part of this is people, if, if no one's following you, um, you may not be doing. You may not be doing it right. Yeah. You may not be impacting. You might have the corner office. You might. You might have the parking spot. But if no one's following you, yeah, I would definitely question whether or not you're leading. Yeah. What What do you notice holds us back from? I mean, it sounds like one thing that could hold us back are just how we view our role as a leader. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what else holds us back from from be, taking the role of leader? Yeah. W- one of the what I do in the book basically is I say, hey. So I, I try to set up this, this idea that leadership really goes beyond authority, that it really is influence. And so uh, I try to build the case for influence-based leadership and not authority-based leadership, which I'm certainly not the first one to do that. But it was just me telling my own story of what I've experienced. And, and then really the, the, it begs the question, well, what am I doing to cultivate influence? Because if it really is all about influence, then am I growing my influence or am I losing my influence? Am I, is my influence eroding? And everyone can answer that question. Everyone can uh, have that conversation. And the book is really about these four behaviors that I'm trying to do in my own life to try to grow my influence. And so to your question of what holds us back, I would say one of the things that holds us back is exactly what you said, that we, we have failed to understand that leadership really is all that influence. So we've never really intentionally put a plan in place to grow our influence. But then the second thing that holds us back, I would say, is there is a negativity that comes when you're not in charge that is just highly dangerous because one of the challenges is we're constantly handed decisions that we didn't make. Hmm. And that's really difficult to steward that well, because there, there's a statement that Patrick Lencioni makes in his book, The Advantage. He says, hey, when, when you give people the opportunity to weigh in, they're more likely to buy in. You think about that. So that's, true. that's such a true statement, that when you yeah. give people the opportunity to weigh in, of course, they're going to be more likely to buy in. That's really the way our government works. Our government, we allow people to vote. That's their, that's their weigh in. And then because of that, we have a buy-in. You know, we, we were frustrated with England because they were taxing us without giving us representation. They were asking us to buy in, and we weren't allowed to weigh in. So, so we created this system that we have. Now, the, the danger, though, I would say, is when you're not in charge, what do you do when you're handed decisions that you didn't get to weigh in on? Yeah. I would imagine, Matt, even in your job, there are things that someone else handed you, decisions that the – station manager or that your boss has made that you didn't get to speak into, yet you've got to somehow find find it within yourself to buy into decisions you didn't get to weigh in on. No, and that really, to me, is one of the most challenging things about not being in charge. Well, and especially as corporations are huge and, and these institutions get bigger and bigger, uh, I mean, there is a reason why maybe seven. I think the numbers Gallup poll shows seventy percent of people are disengaged in their workplace, yep. and it, yep. it probably is simply because they are never really asked to weigh in. And even when they are asked to weigh in, their weighing in has very little weight. That's right. That's right. They feel like it. Ha- it doesn't actually have any sway. Yeah. So the question for me that I try to answer in this book is, you know, that 
you know, you can, you can be frustrated by that and you can go, okay, well, bosses need to do a better job of allowing people to weigh in. And, and that is true. I think as a boss, I need to think through what am I doing to allow people to weigh in. But second, I, I think what's maybe what the, the intent of the book was to say, hey, for those of us that aren't in charge, instead of just becoming a victim and going, well, I'm just frustrated and my boss doesn't do this and my boss doesn't do that, what can I actually do to cultivate, to cultivate influence? And one of the things that you can do is you can find ways to buy in even when you didn't get the chance to weigh in. Mm-hmm. And all of us have done that in our life. And all of us, we, we know we can. The question is, will we be willing to do that? Because cultivating influence really does require us to be excited about what we're working on today. Yeah. That's, you know, that's what my boss, my boss wants me excited about what's going on, what I'm doing today. And, and the same thing with the people that work for me. I want people that work for me to be really excited about what they're working on. I don't want them sitting around going, well, well you didn't ask and you right. didn't ask my opinion. You know, I want them to go, hey, I'm going to choose to believe that the decision that was made was the best decision and I'm going to get all in on it. And so I got to figure out how can I do that? How can I, how can I buy in to decisions that I didn't get to weigh in on? I think, I think that is what ultimately will cultivate more influence for any one of us. And we, it it does seem too like we, um, we're going to influence one way or another. It's, it's really right. right. It's kind of about how we're going to do it. And so if you're handed something you don't have control over, you could just sit back and complain about it, and that will influence everyone one way. But it will also make everyone realize, oh, you're not the leader. That's right. That's right. And, and so you, you actually – you won't grow more authority, moral authority. Right. You won't grow You won't grow much, but, you know, frustration. That's exactly right. So the, the, the next obstacle I would say is, you know, the, the, the person that says, okay, well, so is the answer just to – be excited about everything and just to walk around with my head in the clouds going, this is awesome. Have you, Matt, do you have little kids? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. I have six kids. Have yep. you seen the Lego movie? Yeah. You know that song in the Lego movie, Everything is Awesome? Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. I feel like sometimes when I'm giving this talk to people, I can see it in their eyes. I can see it <laughs> in their face. They're frustrated going, are you telling me that you want me to just walk around going, everything is awesome all the time? And of course, the answer is absolutely not, because that doesn't breed influence alone. You can't just walk around going, okay, well, I'm just going to buy in, even though I didn't get the weigh in, and everything is awesome, and this is so great, and best ever, and that was amazing. No, we still have to learn how to, the behavior that I try to uh, encourage myself to do and encourage others is to think critically. We still have to have the ability to think critically. We've got to have the ability to make something better, to bring value to whatever we're working on today, that I can't be a, uh, I can't be a rainbow puking unicorn <laughs> that is just walking around going, everything is awesome all the time. Now, I do get to choose the attitude I bring, and I need to bring a posture of positivity, but I also need to bring the skill of critical thinking. My boss wants me bringing value to what I'm working on. My boss wants me thinking through how can I make better what it is that's in front of me today. And that's a huge, uh, that's a really difficult thing to do, but it is so important if you want to become a person that is invited to the table, that has, in, that has more influence, that has influence that goes beyond your authority. Yeah, because then, then you're, you're becoming additive to the conversation. You're, right. 
your critical thinking, it, and you distinguish between being critical and having critical thinking. The critical thinking is taking it to the next level, making That's right. sure it's not a complaint. It's actually an innovation. You're innovating. Yeah, the, the line between thinking critically and being critical is razor thin. Hmm. And most people that have the gift of – most people that are wired analytically – most people that are not that they're they're just naturally good at critical thinking and and it's amazing how i really find that people fall in one or two camps they're either naturally prone to positivity and they're just it's easier for them to choose a good attitude it's easier than for them to bring enthusiasm to work or they are gifted at thinking critically they just naturally see problems they naturally see ways that things can get better and if you're wired that way, if you find that you have that temperament or that personality, it is so easy and dangerous to gravitate toward being critical or being cynical or becoming negative because that's the way you're wired. And especially when you're not in charge, because when you're not in charge, it's very easy to feel like a victim because so many decisions are handed to you. So many people are constantly giving you orders, making decisions for you. And so you can easily become the victim. And when, when you're in the victim, when you take a victim mindset, and then you also bring that gift of being analytical or thinking critically, when you combine those two together, it just it's very easy to become negative or cynical. And that's dangerous because you will not cultivate influence if you're someone who's highly critical. I mean, those are the kinds of people that it doesn't matter if they have the best idea. We just don't want to be around them. Right. And they, they certainly don't have any influence with us. It's, it's um, uh, Blaine Lee talked about uh, in his book, The Power Principle, talked about the fact that the real power comes from the follower. And I mean, That's you, right. you could, again, you can be given the position, but you have to, people have to trust your heart and your mind and, and be willing to follow you in the end. So, um, how so? I guess that's how we distinguish too. Some authority, I guess, is given, but in the end, the the most important authority is earned. I would say so. And uh, you know the, you know, kind of the ultimate twist of this whole book, which I didn't necessarily go into the project with this in mind. But the more I started writing about this topic, Matt, the more I realized, oh wow, you know the mo- the amazing thing about this is that. Even let's say you apply all of these principles of leadership and what's going to happen. Well, you're probably going to, as you have already said, you're going to get more authority. You're going to be given more authority. You will be the quickest to be asked to do more. And, and, and so you'll, in a sense, you'll become in charge. Yeah. But the, the amazing thing about this is that hopefully you will have learned how to lead through influence. And even though you have authority, you will not have to use that authority to be able to get people to do what you think they need to do. You can do it through influence because the greatest leaders, the best leaders, the leaders that we want to follow, they don't leverage their authority. They leverage influence even when they're in charge. And so this is such an important thing for anybody listening today who's not in charge and you're hoping one day to be in charge is that what you're doing today is so important because you're not wasting time. You're not forgotten. This isn't meaningless, but this is so important what you're doing today to cultivate influence when you're not in charge so that one day when you get to be in charge, you will have that kind of influence to be able to lead with and to be able to leverage with others because that's the way the greatest leaders lead anyway, even when they're in charge. Absolutely. We're speaking with Clay Scroggins, uh, who's the author of the book, How to Lead When You're Not in Charge, Leveraging Influence When You Lack Authority. Clay is a pastor from Atlanta, from the North Point Community Church, 
and uh, he works uh, under Andy Stanley, who's the founder of the North Point Community Church. And and really, I think what you're teaching us here, Clay, is it's um, it really needs to be taught, I think, to our kids. Our kids need to understand uh, and blow up some of these myths about leadership. Any yeah. any ideas, any suggestions for how we can teach our kids uh, to be better leaders from the get-go? Yeah, I love that you're saying that, Matt. Um, how, how old are your kids? I have a 25-year-old down to a 12-year-old. Wow. So you're, you're in the thick of it. Oh, um, yeah. We've got – we just had our fifth kid a couple of months ago. Is We have – uh, nine seven five three, and then we got a little baby. So, oh wow! Yeah, yeah. You know, certainly, I didn't write this book with family in mind, but just like you, it's hard to think about life and not think about family. Right. And the the more I've done this talk in front of audiences, you know, I, I, almost every time I'll have someone do very similar to what you just do and say, you know what, this actually works as a parent, and this is actually important for me to talk to my kids about as well, because as a parent. You know, it's very easy to leverage authority. It's very easy to say, well, I am the dad and you're going to do what I tell you to do because I said that you're going to do it, which, you know, certainly if your kid's playing in the middle of the street and there's a car coming, uh, that's appropriate. You need right. to do that, you know, but, but as, as I'm sure you know, when you, get, when you have kids at the age that your kids are, there comes a point where your voice as if, if your voice is only a voice of authority, you will not have the same sway with your kids that you want, that you want to have influence with your kids. And it's got to go beyond your position. And so I think the question of what can I do to cultivate influence with my kids? I, that's, I know you asked from a child standpoint, but I would say from a parent standpoint, that's such an important question because if I'm having to, if I'm having, you know, when, when your kids are little, when they're at the age that all my kids are, you know, obedience is really something that they've got to learn because it's authority. Right. But when you get into the teenage years, you want them to learn obedience out of trust built really on influence because this person loves me and they care for me and they want what's good for me. But that requires the parent to have cultivated that kind of influence. Absolutely. And as a kid, I think certainly, you know, Every single day, our kids are going into classrooms or going into peer groups or they're on teams where they don't have all of the authority, but they've got to learn just because I'm not the teacher, just because I'm not the coach, just because I'm not in charge doesn't mean that I don't have sway, that I can't have sway, that I, that doesn't mean that I don't have an opportunity today to influence the people around me. So I think there's absolutely application for parents and kids. Well, and also, I guess part of leadership is knowing when to follow and whom to follow. I mean, and so, uh, cause some of this is just not, not everybody deserves to be followed. Um, yeah, I, I would agree. And certainly just because someone has authority doesn't mean that they deserve to be followed. Now, you know, obviously I believe that authority really matters. Yeah. I believe authority, uh, goes beyond just our government institutions that there's, there's more to authority than just what we see or who we've elected. But, I still think, um, yeah, especially when it's a uh, when it comes to our kids and teaching them how to make decisions based on values and not just based on uh, the influence of others. Because, like you said, not all influences are great influences. No, right. Um, as we wrap up, Clay, uh, what would you say is the one thing if there's if there's one thing we should all focus on when we're in a position and we have a leader that's in charge and leading us? 
Um, what's the one thing we could do that would just immediately increase our ability to to be a good follower, but also be positioning ourselves to become a leader? Yeah, that's a great question, Matt. I, I would say, you know, the the most important thing any one of us could do today is to take charge of my greatest area of responsibility, which ultimately is me, that I don't have to be in charge to take charge. I can take charge of what is maybe the most important thing is certainly what I'm most responsible to lead today, and that's me. And so for those of you that are listening, that maybe maybe you have a boss that is not the best. Maybe you have a boss that you don't like. Maybe you have a boss that you feel like isn't doing a great job or you feel like isn't pouring into you. That doesn't mean that you can't be well-led today. That I believe that the greatest sense of responsibility any one of us has is to lead ourselves well. And you can take the ownership of leading yourself well. And the great news about that is you will assure that you are always well-led if you lead yourself well. And so the first thing I would do is to say, hey, take charge. Take charge of leading you really, really well. You know, even if you feel like you have a bad boss, make it clear, put a stake in the ground and say, hey, I'm going to be well-led. And I would say the easiest way to lead yourself well, maybe the most important thing in regard to leading yourself well, is knowing exactly where you are. Most people know where they want to be. Most people don't know exactly where they are. And you can't get to where you want to be until you know exactly where you are right now. Yeah. And so the, the better you can understand what you're good at, what you're not good at, what your blind spots are, the better you'll be able to lead yourself today. Good stuff. Clay, thank you so much. Great insight. Uh, Clay Scroggins, again, um, the author of the book, How to Lead When You're Not in Charge. He's also uh, the lead pastor of North Point Community Church and is working there under Andy Stanley, who's the founder of North Point Community Church. Great, uh, great lessons learned, by the way, in the pews and also um, with the people, right? Uh, it, being a leader is not just a position anymore. It's, it's much more than that. And we've all got to learn to lead and follow, I think, effectively, uh, no matter what the calling, no matter what the responsibility. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. You know, welcome. Uh, life is full of pressure. Have you noticed it? Just enough to stress you out and make life kind of difficult. Um, but the reality is, and, and we, we hear more and more, that people are feeling more stress, more anxiety, more people are being diagnosed with anxiety. And yet, how can that be, right? I mean, is life just that much more stressful or are we just losing our grip? Are we losing our ability to find the peace amidst all of the pressure? So I, I actually um, – I've had a really weird experience with this. So I have a lot of clients. I teach um, marriage skills, conflict resolution skills, teach them how to communicate and, and strengthen their relationship. But I found a lot of couples, what they're struggling with is one member of the relationship or the or the partnership – one of them may have more anxiety than the other, and that anxiety plays out in really strange ways in the marriage. 
They, they, you may have a partner that worries about a lot of stuff. You may have a partner that might be more introverted and doesn't want to go to every party that uh, you want to go to, or they stress about it and they, they would rather stay home and read a book and, you know, watch Netflix and hang out. And you might be thinking, what is your deal? It's, this isn't fun. This isn't uh, the way to live. We can't always worry about everything. So how do we manage the anxiety if we're going through it? Um, as, as, and, and I created a workshop for it and um, put it on my website, uh, uh, matttownsend.com. But the workshop is really about how we figure out how to get through it. So let's talk a little bit about what anxiety is and what you can do about it. Anxiety, by the way, is an emotion characterized by feelings of tension, worried thoughts, physical changes like increased blood pressure. Everyone, by the way, should experience anxiety, right? If I drop a cobra in your cubicle, you should experience some stress, right? Very natural thing. You should have the worries. The difference with anxiety disorders or people that have an anxiety disorder is their anxiety is, is kind of – it's constant. It's permanent. About 18% of the U.S. population, 25% of adolescents ages 13 to 18, 18% of adults suffer uh, and experience anxiety above and beyond, just a natural state of stress. And so it's a big deal. Now, one thing to remember, though, is not all stress is bad. And that's one of the downsides to trying to deal with anxiety is a lot of us would just rather go medicate our stress, take drugs, take anything we can to to not have to engage um, or just avoid life. But the problem with it is a lot of your greatest growth in life is going to take place when there's a little stress on board. So you got to know that there's this one type of stress called eustress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S, which is a very helpful type of stress. 77% of Americans regularly experience physical symptoms caused by stress. 73% of Americans regularly experience psychological symptoms caused by stress, and 76% of Americans cited that money and work as the leading causes of their stress. Now, interestingly, um, eustress is a healthy type of stress. So the way this works is eustress would be the fact that you love your job and you you know you you have to pick up your game you have to work really hard you focus on going and doing that really big presentation and sure you're a little stressed out on the way there you're stressed out but then you hit a home run and life is great that stress is called you stress that is the healthy stress and if you have enough of it in your life you feel energized you feel focused right you feel excited about life you really feel like your work is is produces results That's the good stress. If you have too much of that going on in life, that's called distress. You start to get anxious, fatigue, exhaustion, breakdown. So at at some point in our lives, we have to know when we're moving from the good stress to the unhealthy stress. So think about it like – think about it like physical exercise. Nobody necessarily loves to feel the stress of running on a treadmill – but once you've but once you've kind of gotten in shape and you can run on a treadmill and maybe put in 30 or 40 minutes on a treadmill that is a good amount of stress that helps keep you healthier if you don't ever want to have that experience of feeling the stress of a treadmill then you could fall into kind of an unhealthy state 
where you're not challenged, you can't do things, you can't even live at an optimal level, or you could actually spend too much time on the treadmill and it becomes distressful and makes you less healthy. So life is about balance, right? So how do we do that? How do we get into life to a point that we, we can balance this anxiety and this stress? So think about your own existence. Do you, do you look forward to your work? Do you look forward to your work day? Do you dread it? Do you have this feeling of uh, just doom and gloom? There's no one way to, um, to kind of assume that uh, you're just – you have an anxiety disorder unless you start looking at how your day plays out. Do you, do you have dread? Do you have fear? Do you always wonder what's going to happen tomorrow? Do you wonder what – do you worry about things that you said yesterday – and maybe obsess about it and think about it many times today. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Why did I say that? If you can't let go of yesterday and you're always worried about tomorrow, you're probably going to feel more and more stress. And stress is normal, right? Think about it. If you naturally spend a lot of time in tomorrow, you should feel stressed because the problem with tomorrow is you can't live tomorrow. So you can call it whatever you want to call it. You can call it anxiety if you want. You can call it stress. I don't call it anxiety usually. I call it worry. I don't call it fear. I don't call it concern. These are all words you may have. Apprehension, unease, agitation, angst, tension. You might have the, the dem dare jitters. But the reality is you probably have worry. And how do you handle worry? Uh, let me give you just a few of my favorite little tricks about worry, okay? And I promise they work. Number one way on earth to manage your worry, and we've talked about it on the show quite a bit, is the fact that um, you got to breathe. When people are stressed, your breathing changes. Think about it. If all of a sudden you heard somebody, you're walking down an, eye, an alley in downtown New York and somebody you know, starts a chainsaw behind you, <laughs> your body is going to kick into some natural fight-or-flight mode. When that fight-or-flight mode is on, your, bre- your body is going to start breathing differently, probably more shallow breathing, right? Because you got to get enough oxygen going, but you got to get that heart pumping. You're going to breathe shallow. You don't have time to take enormous, big, deep breaths. Your body will tighten up. And as you tighten up and get ready to start running, game on. And that's what happens to a lot of people. If I, if I told you today that you're going to have to be on national television in front of three million people and talk about something, that might stress you out. And what you'll notice happens immediately, your breathing changes. You don't tend to breathe as deeply. You don't tend to uh, get as much oxygen in your system. And when that's going on, you feel stress. The natural byproduct of not breathing enough is stress. If I sat on your chest... It would stress you out, I'm pretty sure. It would stress you out. Have you ever done that? Have you ever had – remember back in the day, your friend would sit on top of you and hold your arms down, and all of a sudden you start freaking out, and you can't breathe. I can't breathe. You start hyperventilating. That's what happens when worry kicks in. So the number one tool is to learn active breathing techniques. And there, it's hard to teach. It's really not because it's, it's easier to see, I think, healthy breathing. But all you have to do is go to YouTube and look up active breathing and there are incredible tools online to start learning how to breathe deeply. 
I learned as a as a journalist um, and and an anchor, a television reporter, anchor. Right before I would go on air, I would always take a deep cleansing breath. I try to fill my lungs up with air. I try to hold it, and then I would breathe it out slowly. And when I did that, amazingly, I got rid of the jitters. The jitters literally just disappeared. And they disappear because once your body's oxygenated, you don't need to feel the worry. Many believe 80% of anxiety issues can be managed just simply by breathing. More effective, healthy breathing. Another tool that is so powerful for you is your brain and where you put your thoughts. So once you start to notice your worry, a lot of us start arguing about the worry. I had a great story with my son once where um, he had a little social anxiety and he didn't want to go to his this guitar performance class we had signed him up for. He asked to go to this class, just so you know. It wasn't parents forcing him. He wanted to go to it until it was time to go. Then he started giving us a bunch of lip and story like, I don't want to go. These people, I don't even know these people. I'm not going to learn anything. I don't want to go for two days. And what if it's stupid? I, I want to go with my friends. And they, we had a million things that he was bringing up. When you start to feel worry, you tend to bring up a lot of nonsense, the things that he doesn't like. Well, what if these people aren't there? The, a lot of what ifs, a lot of you know possible things that might happen. A lot of the teacher's stupid. They don't understand me. I don't want to go to school. This is stupid. Scouts are stupid. Whatever you try to get your kids to do that they don't want to do. Um, in the end, don't take the bait. Don't fight over all of these things that aren't the real issue. This had nothing to do with every excuse my son was giving me for why he didn't want to go to the guitar class. It was his worry. His social worry was kicking in. So what I learned to talk with him about is, son, this is your worry kicking in, isn't it? You're just worried. So how are you going to handle your worry? There's only one question you need to worry about when it comes to your worry. It's how you're going to handle your worry. Don't fight about whether you should do it. You've already committed to do it. We've already paid the money. So I basically told him, we've already paid the money. You are going to this camp this guitar camp for two days. You're going. So the only question we need to figure out is, how are you going to handle your worry? And then we can start worrying about how we handle the worry. And by doing that, I forced my son to deal with his worry instead of making up a bunch of stories that aren't the real issue. Does that make sense? Then I just have to give him a bunch of tools to handle the worry, one of which is breathing. Let's practice our breathing. Another thing we can worry about or practice is our thinking. What are we thinking about? Give me some things that you know that, of how this will work for you. I just coached a person on, that had to give a really big speech, and they were, very, they were terrified about having to give the speech. And they're worried that they're going to break into hives. They're worried that their face is going to go red. I'm like, okay, so great. So let's imagine you get up there and you uh, – I go, have you ever broken into hives before doing a speech? She's like, no. But I've seen somebody break into hives and it was horrible. So you've never seen or noticed you broke into hives? No. So if that's the case, what are the odds you'll break into hives? Well, I don't know, but I don't want to risk it. Let's say you did break into hives. Could you wear clothes that would make it so you didn't – no one could see your neck breaking into hives? Well, yeah, I've got this really nice blouse that could cover. Da, da, da. Great. Let's wear that. What else would happen if you started getting worried and your face turned red? What else could you do? 
And we started talking about solutions for how they could handle it. And amazingly, once you start to address the issues that you can handle, a lot of times your worries kick down, right? One of the rules about talking and dealing with your worry is focus where you have influence and power to influence. Don't just focus on what you're concerned about. If you focus on your concerns, your concerns tend to grow. If you focus on where you have influence, your ability to influence it grows. I remember giving a speech once after uh, in, a, in, a, in a speaking class in, in college and um, saw somebody really having a physical breakdown in the middle of their speech. And then I went and gave my speech. And immediately after my speech, I ran to the restroom and I looked at myself in the mirror because I wanted to see if I was experiencing or showing, demonstrating any of the physiological effects of a breakdown. And I got this confirmation that I wasn't. I was a little sweaty, but I wasn't red-faced. I wasn't breaking into hives. I wasn't – my eyes weren't bulging. I wasn't hyperventilating. And once I got that fixed in my brain, I could then know that for me, I don't respond that way. And that gave me more and more power. One of the – another powerful way to manage your anxiety is to recognize it. Call it that. Say it out loud. Wow, I'm feeling worried. Because you're, you're going to have to see it sometime, right? Once you start to see that you're feeling the worry and, and owning the label of it, then you actually can, you can do something more about it. Another powerful tool to managing anxiety is simply um, staying present. Because our inclination is to – and you'll notice a lot of your worry is going to come from your past or your future, worrying about what might happen, worrying about what did happen – The more I can stay in the now and work on what I can work on, it creates some powerful, powerful stuff. Another thing I teach in my uh, worry program and my anxiety program is that you need to build what I call your calmness code. There are certain things that build more calmness, right? And I need to know what my code is. And so over my lifetime, I've been figuring out – I know before I do a big event or a big speech, sleep helps me. I know that I need to be prepared. I need to know my stuff. I need to trust and believe in my abilities. I need to think back to all of my successful experiences. And as I build my own code, I know I need to probably not have caffeine on board. uh, Or sometimes that will create more anxiety for me. I know I need to have some good healthy food in me. I also know before I speak, I can't have just eaten. So I've learned all of these little tricks uh, before I speak. And I now it's interesting is because I speak so much, like two or three times a week, and get paid to speak. It's, um, it changes. It changes your confidence level. It changes who you are. I remember being terrified. Uh, I was the youngest presenter for a, a major training company called Franklin Covey Company, And um, I was this young punk that would go out and try to figure out, you know, I'm going to go speak for this company and I'm, I'm, you know, half the age of a lot of people in the room. And I remember having to just get my position clear and I, I remember thinking, you know what, I just need to remember that this, none of this is about me. Nobody came here and I, I used to write this on the, the, the little workbooks I would teach from. Uh, my my facilitator manual, I would write the phrase, Matt, nobody came here to see you. Just deliver the message. Just teach the principles. 
And I found a lot of peace in that. Nobody was there. Nobody traveled to go to a public workshop to see Matt Townsend when I was supposed to be teaching the seven habits of highly effective people. Just deliver the principles. And I found that when I lost myself by consciously putting myself in a different reframe, it worked. Amazingly, it works. And that's the cool thing about uh, worry. It, it can be your guide. It can tell you that you need to pay attention. And it doesn't need to, it doesn't need to own you. And the powerful thing about it is once you start to take your life back and not let the worry or the anxiety dominate, you have now conquered something that is huge. And now you can start to offer your greatest offerings in the world because you've conquered. You've conquered your weakness. Powerful stuff. We'll take a break, my friends. You can find out more. Just just look up the show, The Matt Townsend Show or matttownsend.com. Tons of material out there. All free. Just here to help. Stick with us. We'll be back. Be happy. Don't worry. Be happy now. Don't worry. Be happy. Welcome back, everybody, to The Matt Townsend Show. You know, people generally have the misconception that in order to be successful, they have to postpone their happiness. Ironically, what research is showing is that happiness is the fast track to success. If, instead of overworking and burning out, you take time to relax, to cultivate calmness, to stay present, and to be compassionate to yourself and others, you will prove uh, to be more um, successful more resilient to stress, and more influential in your work. And uh, that is, uh, those are the uh, results that come from the work Emma Seppala is doing. She's the author of The Happiness Track, and she's here with us this morning to teach us a little bit more about how creating a life of happiness will enable your success. Um, Again, Emma Seppala, welcome back to The Matt Townsend Show. Good to have you back. Thank you so much. Good to be here. And it, and it sounds like you got the book done, uh, The Happiness Track, How to Apply the Science of Happiness to Accelerate Your Success. Congratulations on that as well. Thank you so much. Very kind of you. Talk to us about um, what you're finding out. I mean, we do sometimes think that it's either or, right? Like either you're going to be, you know, out there successful and productive and, you know, get, you know, get ahead of the pack or you're going to have to be happy. But in your book, you say it's, it's not, it doesn't always have to be a trade-off like that. Yes, we have the misconception that in order to be successful, we have to burn ourselves into the ground and um, that we just have to pay the price uh, through high stress levels and, and so forth. And yet, if you look at the research, uh, we're at our most creative when we're in a relaxed state of mind. We're at our most focused um, and we have the most willpower, you know, effortlessly if we are more uh, more calm and if we take care of ourselves. It's, it's very interesting. No matter how you look at it, uh, we actually have our greatest potential when we are taking care of ourselves and feeling good. Huh. We're more charismatic, we're more focused, we're more productive. Uh, we have better relationships with other people and we're more charismatic. It's like we have, yeah, we have more, we're more in tune with who we are. We're probably more we are more aligned to who we are. So, so what happens? Where did we get off track? Why, where did we ever think that you need to kill yourself to get ahead? Why is that even happening to so many? It's the myth that's 
there. And so everyone is doing it, and we're seeing everyone around very stressed, um, running from here to there. Technology has increased the pace of our lives, so we're being pinged all day long from our phone, from our text messaging. No matter uh, what it is we're doing, whether we're at work or in our personal life, things just seem to be moving at a faster pace. And so we feel like the only way that we can keep our just move faster. Ooh, Emma, we're losing you on your phone line. Um, uh, we, 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 you kind of keep coming in and out. So if if maybe um, I don't know if you're moving around there, but it's it, so technology's running us, technology's pushing us, and um, correct. And then I guess that's what happens, huh? We we end up kind of falling prey to whatever is the most urgent starts to run our lives instead of whatever the most important is. That's right, and we're seeing everyone else do that as well. So we bought into this view. But if you look at the research, if we actually took more time um, off completely, so what we're doing is we're working at work, we're working at home, we've got our cell phones under our pillows or right next to our heads, we wake up, we check email, and so forth. That's become just a normal thing to do. And yet, if you look at the research, we're actually more engaged and more productive, more focused at work if we actually completely disengage when we're not at work. Hmm. So... uh, Although it may seem more productive to be doing work emails at home, it will be more in the long run. You're going to do better, be more focused, and get more done when you're at work if you actually disengage, which will also contribute to your well-being and happiness. Yeah, it's that ability. It's, it's true. Maybe we think we're we think that we have to have this constant flow of it, but I guess really disconnecting and disengaging from. Uh, our work, it probably allows other creative juices to flow, which eventually they come back and we can use them in our work. Is that how that works? Absolutely. So we know that we're most creative when our mind is in delta wave mode, which means when it's completely at rest, even idle, it's that moment right before sleep. That's why we get our sometimes our most creative ideas when our head hits the pillow and we're like, oh my goodness, why didn't I think of this earlier? Hmm. Or when we're in the shower, that proverbial idea, uh, you know, aha moment in the shower. That's I, I had it just the other day. I couldn't, I couldn't figure out this thing I was going to be teaching. And I just went to bed and I had that kind of going on in my mind. But all night, I remember kind of thinking about it on some level, woke up in the morning, had the idea. It was right there. There you go. That's right. And and right now, if you look at what CEOs value most and what they're looking for most in the incoming workforce, it's creativity. Of course, you know, the big buzzword out there is innovation, disruption, etc. And yet here we are trying to focus all the time and work, work, work with the idea that we're going to come up with the next big innovative breakthrough. And yet the secret to, to that kind of creative genius is actually taking time to be idle, to relax completely. Is it... I mean, I guess this too is the old, it's a new model of how we see our people, right? We, I guess, kind of through the industrial revolution, we used to just see people as interchangeable cogs. But now in the information age, people are more like a free agent. And if we want to keep these free agents working, uh, we probably need to know how best they work. That's right. And that's why we're also seeing that people are most productive and most loyal to a workplace when that workplace is a positive place characterized by compassionate, kind interactions. We spend more hours at work than we do at home, and yet sometimes we feel people feel that their employees are, again, like you said, cogs in the system. But no, when you have that human touch at work, not only are you happier and your employees are happier when you're able, you know, when, 
but you are, you yourself also benefit from those positive interactions. So those are some, you know, breakthrough new findings, which really don't, they really are very intuitive to us. And yet, um, it hasn't, that hasn't been the approach. Yeah. Common sense, not common practice. Let's take a, a break. We're speaking with Dr. Emma Seppala, and we got to take a break and come back. She's, she's going to have to wrap up pretty soon, but we want to make sure we get uh, some more uh, questions to you, Emma. Emma, we'll take a break, come right back, continuing this discussion about the happiness track, folks. And remember, this isn't, this isn't just feel-good stuff. This is coming from the director of Stanford University's Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education and the author of The Happiness Track. Folks, it's, it's research-based and um, from one of the great universities in the United States. So be real. This is, it's time to get our lives back and get happy. We'll be right back, folks. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We are speaking with uh, Dr. Emma Seppala, uh, Science Director of Stanford Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, author of Happiness, uh, The Happiness Track, How to Apply the Science of Happiness to Accelerate Your Success. Uh, Dr. Emma Seppala, welcome back to the show. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Good to have you. Talk to us about uh, stress because... You know, not all stress is bad either, is it? I mean, isn't there some good stress that we need to have in our lives that also enhances maybe creativity? Absolutely. So stress is actually the reason we're alive. It's what propels us across the street just a little bit faster when we see an oncoming car. Or um, it, it really is if we get a surgery, the stress response is what helps our bodies fight and recuperate. Hmm. However, we've gotten used to the fact that uh, we need to be stressed all the time. We have this idea that in order to be productive, we need to be running on adrenaline, literally. And that's where we over-caffeinate. We wait until the last minute to get things done. We over-schedule ourselves. Um, this has become common practice. And yet what, we, what we're doing is we're actually um, constantly living in fight-or-flight mode. And whereas, like I said, good stress, short-term stress can really help you. For example, it can really help you get through that deadline. Over the long period, chronic stress just wears you out. And people are wondering why they're so exhausted when they come home, why they have no energy, why they need to drink more and more and more caffeine. But actually what we're doing is because we're completely exhausting and burning ourselves out. And there is a better way. And that's why I wrote the happiness track because I saw that happening all around me in these very high-achieving, high-performing universities and Silicon Valley. And I thought, you know, these are great minds, amazing potential, and here they are burning out. Hmm. And... Um, so that's why in the happiness track, I have a whole chapter devoted to resilience, which is, you know, again, you can't do anything about the demands coming your way. But the, the thing is, you can be more resilient. You can make your nervous system more resilient to those demands. So you're not constantly in fight or flight. You can also learn to manage your energy better hmm. by not constantly being in fight or flight, but still be at optimal performance. I love that because as a guy that runs on fight or flight a lot, um, you you also talk about in the book about um, that we we need to also focus on our efforts, not just our strengths. I mean, there was a big movement about the strengths movement, know your strengths. But in Uh your book, are you talking about disavowing the strengths kind of movement or just managing your effort better? Really? 
when we take care of ourselves, we actually have all that it takes to perform at our best. Like I said earlier, when we actually take time off, we're more creative. We become more engaged at work. When we take care of ourselves, um, for, for example, a lot of people believe self-criticism leads to self-improvement. The research shows no. Self-criticism leads to absolutely self-sabotage. It's nothing more than actually shooting yourself in the foot hmm. in terms of your potential. And that's where self-compassion comes in. Again, it sounds soft. It's not. There's a lot of hard data to back up that if you treat yourself as a friend, you actually are more resilient. You learn in the face of failure. You grow from your mistakes. Um, so, again, what I'm, what I'm trying to get across in the happiness track is the idea that if you take care of yourself really well, if you take care of others, if you take some time off, you will have the optimum. Uh, you'll be able to perform at your, at your best. And um, so, you, you, so it's not a question of strength versus no strength, but I'm saying is we all have the potential for creativity. We all have the potential for charisma. All we need to do is tap into it. Hmm. And, and really, it's so many people wear this kind of stressed out, neurotic, um, uh, workaholic as a badge of, I guess, honor. But you're saying it's just a sign. It's a red flag that they're going to implode, I guess. We're seeing 50% burnout across industries in the United States. We're seeing that 70% of the U.S. workforce is disengaged. We're in a time of crisis. And so, yes, it's normal. We think it's normal to live in the stress that way. We think it's normal to over-caffeinate every day. There's absolutely nothing normal about that, actually. Yeah. Yeah, you don't see a giraffe doing that in nature. <laughs> Correct. In fact, some animals, if you gave them caffeine, they would die. You know, it's, it's very strong. And yet it's, it's a drug of choice. We don't even think of it as a drug anymore, but it is. And, and, and really, but it's, it's up to us. I guess part of this is you're trying to create a movement, an education-based movement, to shift away from the fact that you have to stress yourself to death to be successful. Instead, just, you know, be, just find—it's not even just like find peace. It's just be your best self. Calm down, relax— and let your na- your natural success take over. That's correct. And yet that can be very difficult for many of us because we're so used to living in fight or flight. And we're like, that sounds all great, but I'm a mom of three and I'm working and I'm single and I've got a lot going on, yeah. for example, right? Yeah, yeah. So I've worked with arguably the most stressed individuals in our society, veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan with high levels of trauma and anxiety, insomnia and so forth. And within just a week's worth of time, we did, uh, uh, we used a breathing intervention, an all-natural breathing intervention, and we're able to reduce their um, stress levels and trauma levels to normal, uh, to, to, to a normal place. And what I, one of, that's one of the things that I describe in this book. So I'm not, I'm not just giving some great ideas with no practical advice. I really want people to take away something that they can use every day. And breathing is an extremely powerful way to tap into the opposite of the fight or flight, which is the rest and digest. So they can immediately calm down. And that is, um, that is one very powerful technique, for example, that I described. And talk, just talk about the breathing for a second, because what is it that happens to the breathing when we are in fight or flight? When we're in an anxious state or an angry state, our breath quickens and it, it, it gets more short and gets more rapid. On the other hand, when we're calm, when we're happy, our breathing is deeper and it's slower. Now, that's something we can experience every day. What we don't know is that research shows that if you change your breathing, you actually change how you feel. So if you deepen and slow your breath, you actually are going to start to feel calmer. For example, we know that on the inhale, the heart rate accelerates and we know on the, 
on the exhale, it decelerates, it slows down. So when we take longer, slower, deeper breaths and lengthen our exhales, we start to calm our entire nervous system down from the inside out. Hmm. Isn't that amazing? And that's, I mean, I feel it when I do it. Just yesterday, my wife was like, why are you, why are you, uh, what was the word, like sighing? And I'm like, I'm not (laughs) sighing. I'm just breathing. I'm taking a big, deep breath because I need to calm down. That's exactly right. We have these innate tools, free innate tools within our nervous system to both maximize our energy and decrease our stress and, and thereby decrease our burnout rate. You know what I mean? So that's just one of the techniques I describe, but I I really care about this topic, which is why I wrote the book. I've seen too many amazing people burning out. I myself started to feel it. And I thought, you know, when I looked at the literature, I was like, we're doing this all wrong. And that's why I wrote the happiness track. I love it. I know you got to go. So I wanted to ask you one more thing. What would you say, other than buying the book, of course, um, what's the one thing that every one of us can do today? I guess also other than the breathing today to immediately start to find more happiness in our lives? Well, I'll give you two things. One, and this one you may have heard about, is is this idea of gratitude. Um, The research on gratitude has been really burgeoning over the last decade, but really three times more positive things happen to us every day than negative, and yet we focus on the negative. That's just something the brain does. So if we can just do a simple exercise of remembering a couple things that we're grateful for during the day, or just looking around, pausing, and just remembering, wow, I am so lucky. I'm in a car. My heating works. I had three square meals today. I was, you know, I got to sleep eight hours. Like, just the basics. There is so much we can feel grateful for. So that's one thing. The other thing is service. If you do an act of service, of kindness to anyone, it could be the cash register person, it could be your colleague, it could be your neighbor, you will not only make them feel better, you yourself will feel better. And that is something that's one of the best kept secrets to happiness that we have not always tapped into and that we should not only for ourselves, but we'll also be making the world a better place at the same time. Good stuff. Good stuff. Very basic, though, huh? But really research, research founded now. So absolutely. Well, we appreciate you. Track is completely based on research. Every point I make is is heavily backed up for sure. Oh, that's beautiful. Emma Seppala, great work on the happiness track. And uh, thank you so much again for being with us. And good luck with the release of the book. Thank you very much, Matt. Thank you. Take care. Again, Emma Seppala. Yeah, great stuff. The book's called The Happiness Track, How to Apply the Science of Happiness to Accelerate Your Success. Straight out of the uh, Stanford Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. Uh, Really, so if you're feeling burnt out, exhausted, stressed to the core, and you want better results in your life, it's probably time to take a break. I know it is for us. We'll take a break, come back, and uh, give you more tools, more information right here on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, according to Dr. Emma Seppala, 50% of um, current employees in the United States are experiencing burnout. 70% are disconnected. They are they're not engaged is what the research would term would use. They're just not actively engaged in their job. And so uh, it, it, you know, it creates a pretty basic question. If 70% of the workforce is disengaged and you're the only one engaged, would that not just make you more burnt out? 
Yes. If you're the only one doing the work. I think it would. I think you'd see everyone else doing half effort or just not working at all, not even trying. Maybe they're not inspired to do anything extra to actually right. excel. And if you're trying to put forth that effort, that could just demoralize you. But you've, now you've been doing your own research, Terry, because apparently you feel very close to this issue. Apparently you feel like you're carrying an undue burden. An undue burden. Here at work. Uh, but you have found that having employees that you work with that don't pull their weight, it's not always a bad thing. This is new research. It's okay. out of Japan. All right. It's entitled, uh, well, the article I found is titled, Your Lazy Coworker Could Actually Be Helping by Doing Nothing. Ben, Ben, listen So I, I've been benefiting you all along. Allegedly. <sighs> oh, boy. So Maybe I, we ought not be talking I would like this. a written apology from both of you. Signed in blood. In wow. blood. Wow. That's escalated. I'll, yeah, I'll have situation. HR give that to you today. So it says lazy coworkers don't just exist in the office. It turns out that the animal kingdom has its equivalent of the guy who takes a two-hour break. <laughs> just goes to lunch for a couple hours, comes back whenever he wants to. That's really? Same guy. Now, you think that evolutionarily that animal would be dead by now. Well, let's see. It says, but rather than being a, a determinant, a, 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 deter- a study by uh, this professor out of Japan found that communities populated by lazy individuals are actually more resilient in the long run. Wow. So the study, which was published in Nature and reported on by uh, NPR, focuses on ants. Okay. According to his research, ants love to slack off. At any given time, about half of the ant colony is just wandering around, not moving, or grooming themselves. Interesting. Even when observed over a long period of time, between 20 and 30% of ants don't do anything you would call work. That is like Ben. At least 20 of the... Th- I think that's a low estimate. Oh, for sure. And he hardly grooms, so I don't know what he's doing. I I wasn't going to comment on the hair this morning, that. but <laughs> I know he just sort of walks in, rolls out of bed, and shows up to work. This Says, is good while, news. while lazy ants might not serve any purpose in the short term, in the long term, they are not inefficient. The mm-hmm. lazy ants will replace dead or tired worker ants. The same is true of human communities. The uh, professor says he likened lazy coworkers to backup power. Okay. Before, just, yeah. so, so before you go judging the person in the next cubicle over for taking their third lunch break of the afternoon, they, think of them as backup. So, so in, When you burn out, they can step in and do your job. Well, but... Or whatever. It, but when you die, I mean, yeah. they'll be I, there. It is... So, so really, they're just... They're, they're not necessarily helpful until you're done. It's the second string. They'll step in when you can uh, do no more. I don't know the logic of that, seeing as they haven't shown any um, interest in doing anything in the present. Well, yeah, and then will they be able to even do the job? Will they be motivated in the future to step in and, and save the company as as the people who have been doing all the work are burnt out and can't function anymore? Well, that's the point that the manager needs to worry about because you can't just have some people... I mean, it always happens. The top performers will probably carry the way, carry mm-hmm. it. But... You can't have just a second string because they will never perform like the first string. No. And if it's at the cost of your first string, so this is maybe a management issue. Could be. Because it's not, if you're a worker bee or a worker ant, you're still just going to go work while the others are grooming and messing around. Now, the ants are different, seeing that they, they work for one uh, one queen. Yeah. And they kind of, they all fulfill their role. And uh, when they're done, they're really done. 
in the sense of, you know, they die and they're gone. With, with an yeah. office, it's not really that drastic. Well, and you can't really have someone sitting around not working for too long or it's inefficient. Uh, that's an interesting concept. Do you, I, do you think it holds any weight? No. No. No, I think it does. I mean, yeah, they're a backup. I get that. That's good. But there's no respect there. They're not going to be promoted. But you can see it in you have a new hire and you're trying to train that individual to do a job. Right. And then you have someone who's been there for a few years who can do the job. They're doing the job well. And people after a few years tend to, you know, get antsy and move on. Antsy didn't want to draw yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, it's a good pun. Yeah, a good pun there. Um, but they, they tend to maybe want to move on. You have a backup yeah. that can step in and fill their shoes if there's some reason for that person that's leading the way now to if they're not going to be with your company anymore. But wouldn't it be more valuable if you're the leader to sit there and say, okay, hey, backup, hey, pal, what's it going to take to make you become a top producer? Because there are people that really just don't want that responsibility. No. They like being on stage crew. They don't want to be on the stage. They just want to, they want to be behind the scenes, and they like that. But I guess part of it is you probably need to keep figuring out what's, what is it going to take to move you to do the job, not just when you, – you not, you're not just an understudy. You're here to pull the weight. Yeah. I mean, you, as a, I guess as a manager, you can view someone as – say, the, the second string, but you can't communicate that to them. No. It'll shut them down. Unless their, that really... Their expectations of what this job could be would be, be hampered because you just called them yeah, second, string. second string. See, I had a boss that did a great job. He had the highest turnover in the company. Hmm. But it's because he was moving people where they wanted to be. So some people in the company, he was kind of the entry-level sales job in a company, and some wanted to be... Uh, speakers in the company, they wanted to move up. Some wanted to be salespeople. Some wanted just to have a really good recommendation to go to grad school. So his goal was to give you whatever you need as fast as you need it, but I need top performance out of you. Right. And I'll give you whatever you want. If what you want, some wanted more pay and some didn't care about more pay because they didn't want to be there long enough to be paid well. They wanted to move on. So he'd find out what you want and then boom, next thing you know, he's moving you along. And, But I guess that's part of the key, too, to human motivation is figure out what these people want. What is the, what, what is the hook, right, that keeps them working? We've got to figure that out with Ben because I'm afraid. Yeah. It is kind of pulling things down, if you will. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we'll I mean, think about it. We'll have a meeting. Let's have a meeting about that. But do you think in, in, a, in the terms that you're using in this article where you have the guy in the next cubicle with his feet up and he's taking his third lunch break of the day, and can that type of a person be transformed into someone who can help the company? Well, it, I guess— Be an asset in the office. Because, see, I could also see that very guy be a top performer. So if you're, if you're the guy with your feet up, kind of a lot slower than everybody else, but you're killing it, that seems to me the ideal— According to what Emma Seppola was just saying, right. you got to have breaks. You got to have an opportunity to rejuvenate. So if you're a top performer, that's a great attitude. Just feet up, kick back, whatever. But if this guy is feet back, kick, kicked, legs kicked up, relaxed, and never produces anything, I think as a manager, I would try to move him somewhere. Move. Well, I'd try to figure out what's going to be the motivator here. What do we need to do to get you to produce? 
Because as a manager, I'd much rather have two or three people producing, right? Oh, yeah. You want a team of producers. You can't. There, there used to be a day where you could just hire somebody and they could just skate by like that. It seems like today it's more competitive. Like, get some numbers. The workforce has been pared down to yeah. a more efficient and And the data seems model. probably more tangible. I can see who's producing what. And maybe, too, that it's still in, in bureaucracies there might be able to be a person that just can kick his feet up. Right. But I'm thinking of like a sales force. You know if you're making it or not. And again, maybe it's not a bad problem if they're paying that guy a third as much as everyone else. Somebody just did a thing at Harvard saying that um, – an article on, at Harvard Business Review talking about the fact that um, your incomes should all be transparent. All your salaries, everyone on your team should know. They tried this uh, at Google. How'd was, that work? There was an engineer there that uh, they, they, they have a policy where you just don't talk about it. Like most yeah. places, you don't talk about what you make. And uh, people, there were several people went, went out to a, a gathering after work and they decided they were going to publish it. So they put a blog up, I think it was, and they started oh, wow. publishing it. And uh, forces within the company stopped it. People were fired. Not doing that. <laughs> la, 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 la. But part of it is going to breed this transparency. If I see the guy in the cubicle next to me that's hardly doing any work. But you can see that from a, an employee perspective where, where you would be for that. Right. But as a manager, that probably – I don't know if that would be a, a, a good situation as now you, you possibly have a, a source of conflict out there on the floor. Right. Where but, you don't necessarily want that. Well, except – And then you have to have negotiations with people if they're no, performing better. I totally agree. Except, yeah. except then you'd have to get real pretty fast. Because so here's John, and he gets paid $70,000, and he produces X amount, and you get paid $80,000, and you produce X amount. And it's a lot less than John. So tell us what we're supposed to do here. Transparency. Right. Well, but I've been here longer. Well, great. That means you should be producing a lot more than John. This is where, I guess, conversations become a big deal. But one thing transparency does do, one of my favorite quotes is, Transparency is the best disinfectant. So if all of a sudden somebody's just, you know, needs a little disinfecting, turn the rock over. That'll start to that'll start to take care of a lot of stuff. Anyway, interesting interesting ideas here in the uh, in the human motivation and at work 